Hello, Mary. This is Alice. Can my machine talk to your machine? Thanks, Mary. Here we go. Welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 8. What is Ethereum? Big question, and we're going to be answering that in depth. I'm super excited about this episode because this is such an exciting technology where you can really start to see how cryptocurrency and the blockchain is going to balloon out from here. I'm Austin Knight. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Howells Barbie. Hey, Austin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you're like binge listening to all of these by now. We're going to be talking about Ethereum. Everyone wants to talk about Ethereum. Ethereum has been so hot in the past couple of years. 2017, it blew up. And I think that moving forward, it's probably going to only become at least a more talked about blockchain. What the hell is it? That's what we're going to break down into today. We're going to give you a brief history of Ethereum and its native currency, Ether. What the hell the purpose of Ethereum is, what's been built with Ethereum. What are smart contracts? You may remember back in episode five, we talked a lot about the wider applications of blockchain technology, and we talked about smart contracts in there. Well, Ethereum is like the home of smart contracts, and we're going to dig even deeper into what they are and what the implications of them are, talk about some of the different token standards and kind of infrastructure that Ethereum's built and paved the way for. So let's get things started off with, maybe Austin talk us through like just a brief Wikipedia definition. Oh of yes, Ethereum. the best kind of definition. Oh, the best. It's where we get all of our information. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Not cutting on Wikipedia. It's the best thing in the world. Oh yeah. But so again, when you search for a definition for a cryptocurrency, it usually gets super convoluted. And so we're going to start with the convoluted definition and then break it down into more simple terms for you. But if you ask Wikipedia, they will tell you that Ethereum is an open source, public, blockchain-based, distributed computing platform featuring smart contract functionality. What? Does that even say? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I understand it and I don't understand it. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> that, I, I know some of those words. <laughs> words are words and some of them make sense, but strung together in that way make things quite confusing. All right, let's dig into it. Brief history of Ethereum. You're going to get this in like a lightning round, which for me and Austin is ideally within 10 minutes <laughs> with, with many tangents along the way. So... Ethereum is the blockchain, similar to how Bitcoin has its Bitcoin blockchain. Now, confusingly with Bitcoin, Bitcoin's currency, coin, token, is also called Bitcoin. With Ethereum, the native token or cryptocurrency within it is Ether, and it goes by the symbol ETH. Sometimes people call it ETH. ETH. That's sometimes where you'll hear that being spoken of. Ethereum launched an ICO originally. They were one of the first major ICOs that really launched in the space. And that launched on the 23rd of July in 2014. And it was pretty widely covered at this point. It was a super interesting project. There was a lot of anticipation around it. It seemed like everyone wanted to get on board with it, but it did also promise a lot of things that people were very dubious about at the start. 
So far, it seems like Ethereum has really followed through on a lot of these things. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. This comes back to our ICO episode. When the ICO launched, the price roughly worked out at about 30 cents to the dollar for one Ether. Looking at the current price right now, it's a measly $1,300 per Ether. <laughs> so you've had some pretty wonderful gains. And if you got it on that ICO, hats off to you. But hey, it's all imaginary magical internet money until you cash out, right? <laughs> <laughs> the project itself actually went live. So they used a lot of the ICO funds to really fund the development of this Ethereum blockchain and this, this whole wider platform. And it went live on the 30th of July in 2015. So pretty much a year later, right? And Pretty good date. Yeah, no. And I mean, if, if you did, uh, I hate to do this. I, I do hate to do this, but I also love to do it. Yeah, I know. If, if, if you did buy $100 in the ICO, it'd be worth roughly... 400k right now at 1200 per ETH. That's, that's a pretty nice return, I would that's say. That's a good amount of money. Yeah. So, all right, let's let's stop shilling Ethereum. Uh, <laughs> so, Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin. This is a man that if you get involved and I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably had his name come up by now. Super interesting person, was the founder of Ethereum, created it when he was the ripe old age of 19 <laughs> years old, ready to feel bad about your own life by just just a little fun factor in Vitalik. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the killer for me, as if he wasn't already accomplished enough at 19. He also is multilingual, so he speaks English, Russian, French, Cantonese, ancient latin and ancient greek what like who <laughs> who does that well if you ever need to go to ancient greece yeah. uh, you can you can really speak to the grecians uh, in in their native original tongue <laughs> which we all need you know he needs to get together with that guy elon musk you know the the founder of bitcoin you mean satoshi nakamoto yeah <laughs> <laughs> they need to create a time machine yeah, they should actually. Maybe they maybe they are. Maybe this is the game plan. Ancient Latin, ancient Greek. God knows what Elon Musk speaks. I think he speaks uh, whatever they speak on Mars, right? Like At least in preparation. I guess he gets to determine what that language is. Yeah. Wow. So what's the purpose of all of this, though? Because a, a lot was put into this. Obviously, a ton of money raised. They went through this whole ICO process. People have gotten good returns on it. A lot of people are talking about it, but why? What's the purpose of Ethereum? Yeah, and this is the most interesting piece around Ethereum. In all honesty, I think around the launch of Ethereum, and more importantly, when the technology evolved a little bit, I would say that was the thing that was instrumental to getting me interested in blockchain. I said in previous episodes, I mined Bitcoin. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't taking things seriously, nor did I even keep the Bitcoins that were mined. Like this was like, oh, this is a really cool, fun thing, right? Like at the start. And then I was like, yeah, okay, here's another cool thing that's happening right now in my life. I'm gonna <laughs> hop onto that. When Ethereum came in, it, it was like that eureka moment where I was like, whoa, actually this is more than just replacing payments. This is, this is like a full, whole platform that can be built upon and it like started blowing my mind we talked about in episode five some of the wider applications of blockchain this is what sent my mind yeah. down those avenues 
Ethereum was designed to have decentralized applications. Decentralized, decentralized applications. applications. Often called dApps built on top of it. And that's very different to Bitcoin, right? The Bitcoin was designed to be a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. I think there's some good parallels that, that you can kind of draw to Ethereum in the context of the dawn of the internet and the web in particular. Yeah, I would think of Ethereum as the blockchain equivalent of HTTP yeah. in the world of the internet. It's on the protocol layer. That, that's it. You, you think about Ethereum as like this protocol that has facilitated things to be built on top of it. And those things that get built on top of it in the form of decentralized applications in the kind of the, the dawn of the web, this is almost like Ethereum being the web, the protocol, HTTP, that facilitated websites to be built on top that had their own functionality. Now, I, I think it's almost even jumping ahead to say that decentralized apps are like the, the websites of the blockchain, right? But I think it's a good analogy to use to really think about how this is even happening. I almost think about like Bitcoin as like the, the email of the internet, right? That was like mm. what, I think something like 99% of internet usage pre the web was just email. Yeah. And it's transactional and it is very much like Bitcoin. And then we have this whole new layer on top where people are like, whoa, wait, mm. the internet's more than just sending messages to one another. Mm. And then we created animated GIFs. And it <laughs> changed everyone's life, right? <laughs> and then they pioneered smart contracts. We've talked about this in, I think it was episode five, right? And yeah, yeah and again, we, we dug into smart contracts a little bit, talked about how smart contracts could be used in real estate and a few other things, but this was a game changer for, for blockchain overall and enabled trustless contracts with no third parties involved to be created on the blockchain, which took this whole piece of like, all right, I can deliver payments, but I can also create full contracts that connect to other things. And not to get too deep into it, but I think one of the big applications here is like around the internet of things as well, which mm -hmm. we can probably come into a little bit, that where it's not just peer-to-peer, -peer, but device-to-device -device transactions right. as well. So there's this pattern where we can see the important innovations and use cases that are coming out of the blockchain are also very closely tied to the important innovations that are coming out of Ethereum. And especially in the mainstream dialogue, a lot of important leaps forward are coming from Ethereum. Classically, blockchains and tokens will run on a proof of work consensus model. And Ethereum actually runs on that as well. If, if you've heard that term before, that's a big term. That's something that you can read about all the way back in the Bitcoin white paper. I think we touched on it in the mining episode as well, right? Like how, lightly. It's lightly, it's yeah. a it's a complicated topic. <laughs> Maybe one for um, series 2, right? Yes, perhaps. <laughs> but at a high level proof of work simply correlates to the amount of electricity that a miner uses in order to mine on the blockchain, whatever blockchain they're on, and then they can turn that proof of work in for their portion of the token once that block is built. And it just directly correlates to electricity. So it's impossible to fudge that system. And in fact, it encourages honest 
play because if you try to fudge the system, you waste a bunch of electricity and you don't get a token. And it in costs return. you, right? Like it costs it's, you. You're it really economically does. aligned. Yes. Uh, but the problem with that is that while it is so far the best system, it still has some pretty big flaws. Like, for example, now Bitcoin over the course of a year will use more electricity than the entire nation of Ireland. Um, so it's not, it's not the most environmentally friendly policy. Either the Irish are very frugal with their electricity <laughs> usage. And I, I lived in Ireland for a couple of years and I can tell you that they're not necessarily, frugality is not in there. So this is actually just Bitcoin is becoming this behemoth of electricity consumption through its mining network. And one of the things that interests me and yourself in particular, Austin, like we've talked about this, is around this idea of moving to a new consensus model, which Ethereum 100% plans to do, potentially in 2018, is moving to what's known as proof of stake. And we're not going to dive too much into this, because I honestly, I joking aside, I do think this is something that we will go very deep on in series two. But... Ultimately, instead of transferring your computer's processing power and ultimately electricity to secure the network, you stake your coins that you own as a way to manage consensus. There's a whole range of different models for consensus that are being piloted, used. Some, some cryptocurrencies right now, some blockchains use proof of stake. And there's many variations of proof of stake as well. But there's also things like proof of space, which is something that's being worked upon, where instead of using processing power, you're giving up space on your computer's hard drive, and many, many more. We can fall into like almost like a wormhole right now of, of consensus models. The key thing to know is that Ethereum is looking to make a pretty drastic change in the whole way that their blockchain really functions, that if it works and can function correctly, would pave the way for so many more environmentally efficient models because, I mean, who's next after Ireland? That's, the, that's, the, that's <laughs> yeah. the question, right? Once we hit, like, U.S. numbers, we know we're in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, I think then, like, we, we don't need to worry about Trump denouncing the whole climate change fiasco because yeah, we'll probably all have just set it on fire, the world, <laughs> right? So, like, it's game over. All right, smart contracts. That's what I want to move into now. We've talked a little bit about a history of Ethereum. You're probably excited listening to, to some of the stuff we're talking about. It's pretty revolutionary, very different to Bitcoin in every way. Ethereum never wanted to be like the de facto payments method, and that's not what it's all about. What it is about, in my view, is, okay, we've got this, this aspect that we talked about, about being the protocol layer for the blockchain, things being built on top of it. And a key fundamental piece of functionality of doing all of this is smart contracts. Why don't we talk like just a very basic three-pointer on how a smart contract works. I know we've touched on mm -hmm. this before, but I, I feel like we want to just dig a little bit deeper into some of this. So if you take a smart contract, it's first going to be written between two parties and it's hard coded. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you can go back on. An event is going to be triggered and that's going to trigger the smart contract. And then funds are going to be automatically dispensed as per the terms of the contract. So what are some examples of how that would be functioning in society today, something like that? Yeah, I, I think that, that can sound a little confusing when we explain it like that. But 
if you're familiar with the concept of escrow, right? So let, let me explain that a little bit. Let's say you are a company and you're bringing in a web developer who you want to rebuild your website. You create a contract with them. You say, hey, you're a freelance web developer and I will pay you $1,000 if you redesign this web page as per these specifications. And the contractor comes back to your company and says, oh, that's great. Could we, could we do this through a freelance like services platform so that we can hold the funds in escrow? And what that is, is like, if you've ever heard of like freelancer.com, upwork.com, basically you can use a third party where you'll say, okay, I'm gonna pay that $1,000 upfront. I'm gonna pay it to this third party. And they're gonna hold that in escrow. And what the freelancer is gonna do is he'll do, or she'll do the development work. And when she's finished with the development work, she'll contact the third party, so freelancer.com or Upwork. And the third party will look at her work as a web developer and say, okay, this is meeting of all of this contract. It's up to scratch. Perfect. I'm gonna give that to the company to review. And when they give me the okay, I will release those funds to you. That third party is being used as like a mediator. Now, that that seems like a pretty good system, right? Like pretty, pretty yeah. solid. The only thing is, is, is that third party the person who should be judging all of this, right? So what if there's a dispute? The company says, well, you know what? No, this doesn't meet the specification. And it's a bit subjective, there's blurred lines, right? Okay, so the third party is the one that says, well, do you know what? We've decided actually, because we hold all of the power in this agreement, that you're wrong, this person is right. And if you disagree, that you kind of probably have to take legal routes with all this. It's like, okay, right, great. The power comes out of your hands and it goes into this party. Not only that, that third party will obviously take a percentage of the money. So then as the freelance developer, you're basically paying for their added layer of trust so that you've at least got some way of getting that cash. Smart contracts remove the need for this trusted third party, which also gets a cut of the cash, which means you will write in code the agreement. And right now, smart contracts aren't necessarily that easy to build into code, but this is where there are some platforms which we'll talk a little bit about that make this easier. They'll create the, the contract, set the terms, and let's say as soon as the web developer has uploaded the work into GitHub and the company has said, yes, okay, it's in the GitHub repository, I accept this, automatically that smart contract's triggered, the freelancer is paid the full amount, no third party, the trust is built in the contract itself. Really cool. It's definitely not perfect. I think there are similar problems that can come up, but it is really good. And th this is an example I like to give when you think about, okay, what is a smart contract that kind of already exists, but is not related to the blockchain? This is not like an actual smart contract, but what's an example that's comparable? The best thing I often give is like a vending machine, right? So you think about a vending machine, you want to go in, you want to buy like, I don't know, like a can of Coke or something or a chocolate bar. You go to the machine, you are told how much this specific like chocolate bar costs. Let's say it's $1. You insert your dollar. The vending machine says, okay, this $1 has been inserted and it's fulfilled the terms of this contract and it dispenses the chocolate bar. That is kind of basically a smart that contract, That is a right? very basic form of a smart contract, yeah. It, and, and what we're doing is we're digitizing that. Like 
digitizing vending machine. Yep. I hate to recall a concept from our previous episode, but I feel there's an application for facts to be brought back again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, we need to get a fax machine sponsorship. <laughs> we really do. If KFC turned us down in previous episodes. Yes, I, we, we have really just set ourselves up for the best sponsorships. <laughs> um, the difference here, of course, being that the smart contract won't ever eat your money. That is true. That is true. So what are some examples of real life use cases for something like this? Like obviously, you can think, oh, okay, you know, legal document that'll say, I'm gonna uh, take an action, and when that action is fulfilled, this person gets money. That's that's useful, but what are some of the ways that you can apply that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of them, like basic stuff, and this doesn't always need to be like a hugely complex like example. I think we can take a very simple example right now. So let's say my child is in college right now, or my minor is in school. Uh, that is the child miner, not the Bitcoin miner. And I say, okay, I want to pay my weekly allowance to them in, let's use Ethereum in this example. And I want to just set up a smart contract so that whenever a date occurs, it automatically pays out Ethereum to them. So I create a smart contract and it says, hey, on the first day of every month, pay my child like 0.001 of an ether, I guess how good a dad I would be, would be dependent on the amount, how generous I'm feeling. And that will trigger automatically. There, there, is, there is two requirements there, the date occurring and the amount being sent. Sent straight to my child's Ethereum wallet, boom, done. Smart contract triggered. Yep. What if you could have a car that only would require insurance when you were driving it? So we were talking about microtransactions Mm -hmm. and smart contracts, sort of combining those two things. So right now you pay for insurance for your car all the time. I have a car that I literally never drive, but I have to have it for like that once in a blue moon oh, yeah. time, right? And I actually put, I manually put insurance onto it and take it off of it for the times when I'm going to be driving it. Well, like it's it, hideous. In, in the UK, you, you basically just have to have insurance no matter what. Like throughout the whole year, you just mm -hmm. have to have that car insured. It's like different in the US, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a painful process. Yeah. Well, imagine if you could get in your car and as soon as you start rolling, you've got a microtransaction running through a smart contract. You're paying for insurance just for that time. I love that. need it. That would be that would be killer, right? It's like immediately setting that up. I mean, there are even arguments to be made that the blockchain is going to basically get rid of the need for insurance because insurance in itself is based upon predicted risk. And mm -hmm. I mean, what the blockchain provides is a lot more certainty. I would love for the insurance industry to be disrupted. <laughs> I mean, not to like get me off on one around the insurance industry, but I feel like that is ripe for destruction. I I, I want to, uh, did I say destruction there? Destruction, <laughs> total <Ripe> destruction. for destruction, <laughs> kill everyone. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> uh, just to reiterate my point, I don't want to kill everyone in the insurance industry, merely <laughs> disrupt it. Uh, okay, so on that note, actually, I like that you pulled in vehicles a bit here because this is a bit more minority report -y, right? This mm -hmm. is a bit in the future, but uh, that man Elon Musk is coming up again. <laughs> Autonomous vehicles. I think this is something that we're going to see within the next 
10 years, if not sooner, where we have completely self-driving cars. And I would imagine we're going to see a self-driving Uber pretty pretty soon. Yep. There's, there's a problem that a lot of people don't think about that much with self-driving cars because people are often way more focused on, well, like, is the car just going to, like, drive me into a wall? What happens if it gets hacked, et cetera, et cetera? Let's talk about the logistics of it. One thing that all cars need is if it's electric to charge, if it needs fuel, it needs to refuel. The logical thing is that most autonomous cars will probably run on electricity and they need to get to a charging point. But what happens if with the internet of things and the cross section between the blockchain, you could transact and trade electricity between devices. It's like an interesting thing that I know uh, the project IOTA is focused on, basically the blend of the Internet of Things and not actually the blockchain, but another form of distributed ledger technology called the Tangle, which we won't even get into too much in this example. But what if when, a, when an autonomous electric vehicle was stopped in traffic, right, and, it, and it's next to another autonomous vehicle, one is low on energy, the other is high on energy. What if they could transact and sell that energy to one another immediately right there in a smart contract that was pushed and sold in microseconds using a microtransaction with low fees? That's pretty efficient. That's pretty compelling. Right. Because yeah. I think one thing in like battery technology in particular is waste is, mm -hmm. is bad. And how in, in electricity in general, in the creation of net new electricity, how do you manage electricity that's wasted and not used? It's a massive issue. And a lot of it is like, okay, how do we even trade small amounts of things like electricity with kind of our current fiat systems? Because one, it doesn't help us do microtransactions. Two, the fees would be too hard. And logistically, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. We are, our society, the way that it's set up right now is very wasteful. We buy things in excess and we don't use them. And when we aren't able to use them, even with wonderful inventions like Craigslist, a lot of the time <laughs> we still don't end up selling them to other people and they just go to waste. Yeah. Uh, and the implication of this is that, that you would be able to solve for issues like that. Or taking it perhaps a step further, those autonomous vehicles could become fully, fully, 100% autonomous, as in they don't even have an owner, yeah. per se. And you can start getting machine-to-machine -machine payments. So, you know, I get in an Uber, and this car is fully responsible for itself. So I, I make a transaction with the car in order to have it drive me somewhere, but then it needs electricity. So it goes to an electric plug, and it makes a transaction with the electric plug, with the literal machine to buy electricity from it using the currency that it just earned from me. And then it leaves that electric plug and it goes to a service bay so that it can get a new set of tires or whatever it may need. And it pays the service bay to put a new set of tires on it. And it does this entirely on its own. I, I think this starts an even bigger debate really. And this is blending more into the internet of things, but I think that's what Ethereum and other related technologies around this really facilitate is like, the whole movement of ownership of assets in the future, right? It's like, I, I believe we will get to a day where owning a car yourself is a bizarre yeah. concept. Like why you have these autonomous economies that work themselves. You just basically walk into the street and open up the closest car. You don't need to. And with cryptocurrency, your time spent in that vehicle can just be debited straight from your wallet. That vehicle can then use those funds to 
buy electricity and like power other transactions. Taking this even further, it's like device to device stuff is okay, we can sell data between individual devices like weather nodes in like the most distant locations over to other devices that need these things. So th this is something where smart contracts really layers into this. We we talked actually a bit about Slocket, the device in one of our previous episodes that is basically like a smart locking device for your front door and how it will only open for renters if they've paid their deposit, paid their rent on the right day, and they've produced their correct ID. I mean, one thing we've talked about is a use case here is almost for the creation of a decentralized version of Airbnb. That could be crazy. Right. I mean, for me, I love Airbnb, but I've actually, I've recently sort of gone back to hotels, as crazy as that is, just because the process of accessing the Airbnb can be so difficult. And so I like having somebody at a front desk that will greet me and give me the key, and I don't ever worry about getting locked out in the cold. What about autonomous housing, right? Like we talk about- oh God. here we go. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting into a rabbit hole, but like we talk about autonomous vehicles, like why not have autonomous housing, right? Like you could just hop into a house using your, your cryptocurrency to pay, whether it's ether or something else. And you know, all the devices that are in that like the fridge is a smart device that pays for its own groceries to be restocked. Getting into like 3D printing here, right? And there's actually companies out there right now that are pioneering 3D printing food, which I think is going to be a huge part of our lives. Maybe not our lives, but at least our children or children's children's lives. 3D printing food, putting that straight onto the table when it's needed autonomously having like cleaning services done, powering, mm -hmm. buying electricity, all of this, right? Okay, this is getting like super creepy now. I'm, I'm freaking I, everyone I'm out. I'm so scared. I, you know, so many Embrace of these use cases, like not owning a car as a person that like grew up around cars, you know, and took pride in that ownership. It's like, that's a terrifying thing. But at the same time, I think to myself, like practically speaking, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was recently at a Toyota plant, the mm -hmm. biggest Toyota plant in the world. And it's amazing, this Toyota plant, right? Yeah. But, did they accept crypto? <laughs> unfortunately, no. Damn uh, They did have robots, though, and the robots looked like they were ready to revolt because they were much <laughs> more efficient than the humans. But you look at, like, think about all the cars on the road and how much material, not only the amount of resources that are used to power each one of those cars individually, which, of course, would be much more efficient in, like, a form of public transportation, like what you see in large areas of Europe, but the, the materials used to actually make those cars, it's excessive. And a lot of the time, those cars are sitting in a garage. Like for the majority of their lives, they're parked. And so we have all of these cars that are not being used. What if you just needed enough cars for the amount of people that were being transported at any given time? Yeah, I, I I love that. I'm gonna get us back on track because we yeah. are like we're in Skynet territory right now, <laughs> and my mind is going all over the place. I think one of the things I do want to touch on is actually like smart contracts. Right now, that they're, they're not an overly easy thing to to code up. They are quite complex from without being a smart contract coder. This is from what I understand. However, there are some like platforms that are popping up, and I think this oh, comes back to the whole point what we we're talking about with exchanges as well. It's like things are getting a bit more user-friendly and easier to do without having to be like a coder to get involved in this, right? Like, And I think the same is going to happen with mining. It's going to be user-friendly. 
But there are a couple of companies, uh, I think one is like Jinkor, another is Ether Party, where it's almost like they're creating their own smart contract creation platforms in like a drag and drop type style. Makes this a lot easier for businesses. It's almost like, think of them like the Wix for the website builder for smart contracts. Yeah. We, we can probably assume that there's going to be more and more of this happening and things are going to get less and less technical and easier to do. But I think that's an interesting point. And there's even been a bunch of states within the U.S. now that are really legitimizing smart contracts, right? Like Arizona, Vermont, and a handful of other states, they've already passed laws that legally accept digital signatures within contracts, i.e. smart contracts, to to be used as like a legally binding contract. There's been uh, some there's been some houses sold on the blockchain as a result of this and I think for real estate Unreal. it's going to be huge. Yeah. And for ether in particular it's it, it's going to be a big one. That that kind of brings us on to this this next piece about like all of these things we're talking about building It's all so willy-nilly, man. It's all over the place, right? Yeah. Like if we're going to if we're going to build Skynet and destroy insurance, <laughs> right? Like we need to have some kind of standards in in place, and this this is where Ethereum they they they've been working on this. One of the standards they've built is the the ERC twenty token standard. Do you want to just like enlighten everyone around the basics of what this even means? Yeah. So there are a lot of tokens or coins that are built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So because of this, there's so many variables. And so Ethereum built a standard that developers could follow. And it's kind of like the W3 standards of the web. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's like what Ethereum are trying to do and Vitalik and the rest of his team is they're trying to make this as easy as possible for people to build on things, but also when they're building on top of Ethereum, not creating complete chaos. We need some yeah. kind of uniformity, a token standard. This also makes it so much easier. For example, when a new cryptocurrency project comes out and they create an ERC-20 compliant, let's say, token, any wallet that supports Ethereum and ERC-20 standards can also support that token. Yeah, and they, it just means you can store all of these things in the same place. You yeah. don't need like a specific wallet for this one token, which becomes, in all honesty, a, a pain in the ass. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to like the web before W3 standards, or there were even standards attempts that were made far before that, it was a crazy place. And you could view the web through one browser versus another and have two completely different experiences. And now the web is really built on the shoulders of the giants that are so influential in this industry at this point that said, you know, we need to put some standards together so that there is at least some consistency in the experience. And that's fairly similar to what Ethereum is doing right now. All right. So let's just summarize things up. It's been a lot, a whole lot of tangents that we've went down, but summarize this down. Ethereum is a blockchain, different blockchain to Bitcoin. Operates in a similar way, but with a lot of key added features on top of it. Its native currency is Ether or ETH, ETH. It's been kind of like live since 2015. And the big thing of Ethereum is the ability to build decentralized applications on top of it. This is a protocol to be built on top. Smart contracts being one of the key bits of functionality that can facilitate 
the ultimate downfall of Earth. I think <laughs> is the, the, the key thing there. All right, this has been fun. Last episode of the series coming up. We're going to be going into the case against Bitcoin. This is going to be slightly controversial. Make sure you tune into this. It's going to be a big one. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show both myself and Austin your appreciation, we'd love that if you could spend some of your time adding a quick review on the iTunes store or your favorite podcasting platform. You can also check out and visit us at thecoinoffering.com. Follow us on Twitter at thecoinoffering. And you know what? You want to just shoot us a quick email, chat to us, make suggestions, tell us how terrible we are. Send us an email at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. Thanks, and hope you enjoy the next episode. Here's a sneak peek at our next episode. If you run a project and you want to issue tokens to people, you could distribute them equally amongst a whole wide span of individuals to pre-distribute the wealth opportunity in amongst all of this. Is that happening within Bitcoin is the big question. And I think what we'll probably come on to is maybe not. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.